this is really, like, hopefully beyond the theological concepts, which are rich, rich. Paul is just like, like he's going to say in chapter 12, have your eyes wide open to the mercies of God. Like, you know that really creepy ad where the woman has her eyes closed and like painted and then like the entire, that's the creepiest ad. And then eventually she opens her eyes. That's what Paul's saying. Like, open your eyes wide to the mercies of God. Like, don't, don't be asleep. See this and see how amazing he is. See how amazing his love is. I am amazed by you. You love me. I just wrote glorious here because, you know, we could have dropped in, I suppose, at chapter five and skipped all the first stuff, and and you might, you know, we might go, well, that's again, that's really great, you know, God, thank you for doing that, but we wouldn't really have any, like, if we really get chapters one, two, three, like, we really understand the depths of our sin, how hopeless it was for us as mankind. Then, when we see the love of God and what He did in Christ. It, it becomes much, much bigger. Much, much bigger. It's so glorious. It's like the sun has been peeking through the clouds in, in, in a couple of spots in Romans. And last week we kind of saw how, how Abraham, of course, was, was justified by faith. And we, and we went through that and go, okay, okay, that, that's cool. It was a long time ago, but at least we know it's like biblical. This isn't some new idea Paul had. This is like, like really old because Abraham's a long time ago. And now we come here and it's like the... the the cloud parts, the sun bursts through. And this is what I've been wanting to tell you all along, but you had to know the other stuff to really appreciate this. And so we've been justified. We, we have been made right with God through faith. That's been his theme the whole way through, that we're justified, we're made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's happened. And that, that we talked about having a forensic sense, that that was a legal thing, that we've been declared righteous, that the, the judge kind of brought down the gavel on us and said, pardoned. And there's a forensic sense to that. And then we could go, it's sort of, like if you went to court and, and you were pardoned for some reason, you'd walk out and you'd be glad you were pardoned, but you'd basically walk out kind of, Licking your wounds, right? Whoa, that, I don't know. I don't know what just happened back there, but man, I was I was guilty, and and I don't know what happened, but I'm pardoned. But if that was all, it would have sort of a a stale taste in the mouth, you know. You people would still be looking at you kind of funny. You wouldn't really ever feel like you had really been pardoned. That was all it was. Just this forensic, justified, that's it, okay, uh, decided to let you go. But there's so much more. And that's what Paul is going to get into in this chapter. He wants to say so much more. He uses that much more. Three times. And then he says, again, even stronger. He wants to know, wants us to know that there's so much more of these blessings in Christ. There's so much more. So justification, hey, was desperately, desperately needed. And now he's going to go into these glorious chapters, 5, 6, 7, 8. And they all flow from this verse, this first verse. And it all is centered around Jesus Christ, our Lord. This person, this access to God. Well, let's look at it. Therefore... Since you have, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we exalt, we rejoice, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He wants to talk about the benefits of what it means to be justified by faith. This isn't some cold legal transaction. This thing is incredible. The first blessing <coughs> is peace with God. Peace with God. That's the first thing. It's not just that we're sort of off the hook. We have peace with God. Now, if you've got peace, then it, it suggests, of course, that we were enemies. We're going to see that. But our standing before we came through Christ to God is that we were enemies. We'd broken his laws. We'd messed up. And, and, and we were at 
war with God. We were enmity with God, and we could do absolutely nothing about it. And God chose to change that. And so we have, we have right now, peace with God. We're standing in His grace. We're rejoicing in hope. This is incredible. We have peace with God because of faith, because taking seriously what God has obligated Himself to do by His promises. Peace with God. This is incredible. That that term, with God, John uses that when he talks about the Son and the Father and how close they are. And he says the word that Jesus was with God. That close. And he says, we have peace with God. That's incredible. We needed that so, so much. Then he says we have access. We have free access. And this isn't just that we can sort of get through. This is the picture of someone taking you and bringing you into the presence of the king and ushering you into the presence of the king. And that's what, that's what this access with God is. That Again, we're not sort of let off the hook and we sort of slink away from, from the judge. But rather, we have access into his living room. It's like, it's like the judge says, you're pardoned. And by the way, come home for dinner. I want you to meet my family. Like this is just, this is nuts. This is out of this world. This is crazy, this love of God for us. That he actually wants us. So we have this privilege to come. And then joy. This idea of joy is here. See it? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we're, we're not, again, we're not just sort of um, put down somewhere. Well, all right. But rather we're standing in his grace. And we're like, wow, what just happened? Standing in his grace, amazed at how kind and how loving he's been to us. Wow. And then it says, um, we exalt, we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at all this stuff. We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God. We've gained access. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All of this stuff connected together. We're in, in hope of glory. The end of man's creation. Why were we created at all? So that we could glorify God. And apparently, God's number one exhibition, when he wants to show the glory of God, I mean, he could show his creation. He could show what he made. He could show the incredible wonder of that and go, well, there, that shows the glory of God. It does. He could, he could show the, the intricacy of the, the finest uh, Adam and the beauty of how it's all put together. He could, he could, he could show that. But apparently, the, the thing that he thinks is the best to show the glory of God is redemption. It's forgiveness. It's taking us, these sinful people that were his enemies, and showing the glory of God in how he's making us into the image of Jesus Christ. And he says that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we absolutely know is true. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God. Now, right now, I mean, Paul's, he's narrowed his focus. Okay, he's been talking about all mankind. Now he's talking about those who have, through faith, come to know Jesus Christ. And he's saying, this is your standing. This isn't something you hope for. This isn't something that might happen. This isn't something you try for. This is who you are. You have been justified by faith. You have peace with God. That is your standing. That is who you are. You have peace with God. You have gained access by faith. You are standing in His grace. You joy, you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because He is bringing glory through what He is doing in your life. That is what He is all about. That is who you are. Understanding who you are. Peace is a condition. It's a state. It's reconciliation. You've been reconciled with God. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Not like the world gives. Anybody listening to him would have been part of the Roman Empire. And they would have understood the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. It was peace enforced by a sword. He will be at peace with us. 
or you'll die. Jesus said, I have a different kind of peace. I have a totally different kind of peace. This is my peace I give to you. It's not like the world gives. So don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid because I am offering you my peace. This is incredible stuff. It's beyond understanding. And you get to participate with this. Reconciliation with God through Jesus, the removal of his wrath on you, and the bestowing of his favor. So, you want to look back to the past, that's been forgiven. You want to look to the future, there's the hope of glory. You want to look to the presence, the Holy Spirit is here with you right now. No matter which way you look, nothing can separate you from the love of God. This is how Paul said it elsewhere. In Ephesians he said, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. He is our peace. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. He's in the context he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Thus making peace. And in one body, Christ, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles. Peace to you who are near, Jews. And through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The, the whole Trinity is involved in this one, okay? God the Father loves us, wants to be reconciled to us. God the Son, Jesus Christ, dies for us to provide the means of that reconciliation. The Holy Spirit comes and points us to Christ and is kind of the, the adopting agent, kind of reminding us that we are God's children and bringing us that peace with God. Christ is reconciling. He's the mediator of the sacrifice, giving us access to the Father. The Spirit is there giving us the certainty of that fullness and, and that continual intercession through Jesus Christ the Lord to the glory of God in whom our confidence rests. Not only so, verse 3. And then this is like, what? We also glory in our sufferings. Oh, wait a minute. We were, we were rejoicing a minute ago in the hope of the future. I mean, I can get that. I can kind of look forward to, to what God's going to do and the glory of God and, and, and how I get to, in the grace of God, enjoy life forever in the new heaven and the new earth. I think, oh, that's incredible. That's awesome. And now I'm supposed to rejoice in my sufferings. Like, that sure was a, wow. But, but you know what? I'm so glad this is here. Because I know that for some of you, worshiping was, was painful tonight because what you're going through, it gives us tough. I know that some of you are experiencing real pain, real disappointment, and real suffering. And you're like, how can I worship in this state? And Paul says, you know what? I want you guys to know that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because they are not meaningless. They are not random. They don't just happen to us. This suffering that we're going through, particularly suffering for the name of Christ, but, but not just that. This suffering, this very real pain that you experience has some purpose. And look at the way this cycle, it's a complete and perfect circle. We started out with hope. The hope of the glory of God. And now we glory or we rejoice in our suffering. That seems bizarre. Why? Because we know that there's, there is some purpose to it. It's not random. It's part of the plan of God in our lives because he's got a way bigger plan than we have. And you know what? If, if all I had was this life, if I knew I had maybe 70, 80, I don't know what years, and, and that was it, and, and I'm kind of like I'm most of the way through that, let's face it. And, and so we're suff I'm suffering away. And you tell me, oh, but Gord, it's okay. You're going to be a better person. And I'm thinking, that's really great. I'm so glad I'm going to be a better person. And so I suffer, 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 and then I die. Like, what is the point? If that's all there is. But if my suffering is part of a plan of God... 
that is making me more and more like Jesus Christ, that through all ages of eternity in the future will bring glory to God because he has built character into my life. He has built eternal things into my life and that I will rejoice forever in his glory. So that in chapter 8, Paul's going to say, the sufferings you're going through can't even be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in you. If that's true, then that, that changes everything. Because then if that suffering is actually building character, and I might be a better person for the years that I'm on earth, and that's certainly true, but this thing actually has all the way down into eternity in mind. If that's true, then this thing is way bigger. Then suddenly my suffering isn't just about right now or about even these years on earth, but this thing is like eternal. That's totally different. That's much, much bigger. So Paul's going to say, I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance or endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. Wait a minute, I thought we were already hoping in God. Yeah, we were. That's true. We become a Christian that first day. We have peace with God. We have hope in the glory of God in our life. Yes, that's absolutely true. But guess what? If we take that faith and God refines that faith in the crucible of suffering and takes the fire and refines the gold of our lives and the impurities come out and he takes that and can, can show that gold of our lives to the glory of God through suffering. If he does that, that produces character, that produces perseverance and endurance. And ultimately that hope that we have now is so much better than the hope we had at the beginning. You talk to somebody who has suffered and has kept their faith in God through that suffering. You talk to them. You will find a quality of life. You will find a quality of hope there, which is which has got teeth. I mean, that is, that is strong. It is pure. It is gold. The hope of a new believer is fantastic. But the hope of someone who has gone through that suffering and endured. Endurance is kind of a funny word because enduring sounds like we sort of, sort of have to take it sort of endure this thing. But in the Bible, it says that Jesus endured the cross. Now, does that mean you said, oh, okay, uh, I guess I'll take it. No, he triumphed over the cross. So he went through the cross on purpose and he triumphed over the cross. So what is endurance? Is it passive? No, it's active. It's strong. It's it's hanging in there. It's triumphing over suffering. It's got teeth. It's an important, important concept. And as that happens, that produces character in our life. And as we look and we see that God has produced character to the glory of God, that gives us even more hope for the glory of God in the future because we can see it right now in our life. That is so, so amazing. Endurance. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Hebrews says. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. And so on. And then to Paul, uh, he writes this. Uh, he had a thorn in the flesh that was given to him, and he pleaded three times for God to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And then get this. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. When I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know why we've got this idea that we need to sort of present this great strength to each other. Yes, I'm just doing so well. Uh, you know, when, when, when Paul says, I want to glory in my weakness because when I'm weak, when I know that I've come to the end of my resources and there's nothing more in me, that's when Christ is right there prepared. That's when he's right there prepared to be strong. When you come to the end of it, you've got nothing more. As a God, I'm not even sure. I, I just have nothing left. God is there, ready to strengthen you in that moment. Because then he can be glorified in your life. My weakness magnifies God's power. The moment I realize and admit I'm weak, God is ready to help. That my faith, my perseverance is strengthened through the Holy Spirit. It proves character. And that knowledge brings me hope. It's full circle. And then I love verse 5. It says, hope does not put us to shame. Better, hope does not disappoint. <coughs> you say, well, you know what? I can think of a lot of hope that disappoints. 
a lot of things in my life you might say that and that's really disappointing. I can tell you some people that have disappointed me. I can tell you some circumstances that have disappointed me. Yeah. I can tell you some you can turn that off anytime. It'd be lovely. Thank you. It disappoints me when that happens. That thing's on a timer apparently for Disappointment. But there's a kind of hope that does not disappoint. And that's what Paul's talking about. Believe me, he'd had lots of disappointment. He'd had huge disappointments. But there is a hope that does not disappoint. What hope is that? The hope that's, that's, that's been taken through the crucible of suffering. And it's, it's why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit poured, pouring his love into our, the, the love is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. And that kind of hope is so amazing when everything else fails us. When they're missing the biggest disappointment, you know that the Holy Spirit is there and he is pouring his love into your heart. And that hope does not disappoint. God will not disappoint you. Everybody else eventually will, but God will not disappoint you. His love is being poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This hope is anchored in God's love. It's anchored at the throne of grace. The Holy Spirit is reminding us that we are objects of His redemptive love. This poured out, this idea of God's love being lavished upon us. It's like pouring over Pouring over. I'm not guilty now. Get out of here. It's no. Pouring his love. So the judge inviting us home to dinner and then saying, oh, by the way, we want to adopt you into our family. Here's your brothers and sisters. Maybe you know that my daughter is from China. When she was nine months old, we went there to meet her. And, um, and we had a little picture this big. Little wee picture. Still have it. That's all we had. And so we went over. Uh, to meet her when she was nine months old. And um, we named her, but she didn't know what the name was. And um, we prayed for her. She didn't know that. Um, and, I mean, basically, how do you love someone you've never met? How, how do you love someone of a different race? How do you love someone of the different the other side of the world? I mean, all that stuff might go through your mind. And we got there, and uh, I remember they all came in. All nine girls came in, carried by these bellboys and these funny little outfits. And, they, and they're all carrying girls. And you're kind of looking. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, 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 it could be. Yeah, that could be. They called her name, Yang Liang. Uh, yeah, that's her. You look at her. My heart was so filled with love. And I picked her up. And she is my daughter. At that minute, she is my daughter. I mean, I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you except that my heart was absolutely filled with love at that moment. It just, it's, it's been from that minute. It's never stopped. She is my daughter. I absolutely love her. Just in that moment, she's my daughter. We, we adopted her. Now, that's, that's what happens at the minute you have peace with God. Unknown. I mean, she was unknown. She wasn't an enemy. She was unknown to me. We were enemies and at the minute that through faith we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes our father. He adopts us. His heart is absolutely... I am a imperfect, fault-filled father. Two here could verify this in a minute. I, my love is incomplete. God is a perfect father with an infinite heart. So if he chooses to love, and if, if that can happen to me, then it can certainly happen to God the Father. And his heart is filled with that love in that minute. You are his child. It's, it's over. I mean, you are his child. You, you are there. And he, his heart is filled with that infinite and perfect love in that minute. It's just unbelievable. You see, verse 6, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Guess who? That's us. At just the right time, at that perfect, at this timely intervention, the time um, ordained by God, the time of our greatest need, this critical time, while we were still 
powerless. Well, there's no way we could save ourselves. God, Christ died for the ungodly. All of us. And Paul, Paul is just like shaking his head. He's like, I'm amazed with you, God. I'm amazed with your love. This is unbelievable. And then he, Paul, like, shaking his head, just so how bizarre is this? How crazy is this love? Because he says, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for the good, uh, literally for the good, someone might possibly dare to die. In other words, you might find a cause somewhere where someone might die for it. You might find a really good person that someone else might die for. It, it happens. It's rare. But, but it happens, Paul says. Okay, it might happen. Greater love is no one than this, Jesus said, that a man lay down, his, lay down his life for his friends. But then he says in verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you get what he's saying? How amazing this is? Yeah. It's, you might find someone that would die for someone else if they were really for a good cause. But, but God did something even more bizarre than that. While we were still sinners, while we were hopelessly um, powerless to save ourselves, that was the time that Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act, and then he died for us at that point when we needed it the most. And it says, he didn't, it doesn't say God demonstrated his love, past tense. God demonstrates like this is ongoing. He continues to do so. And it's God, please notice, God the Father who demonstrates his love for us in this. Christ died for us. Christ didn't die to try to sort of make us, bring us to the place where God the Father could maybe love us. God the Father already loved us and Jesus Christ died for us. What grace. What love that God loves the unlovable us. We're loved by God the Father. We're loved by the Son. And the Father demonstrated his love for us as sinners. You know what? God redeemed us. He didn't have any buyer's remorse. He doesn't think about it the next day. I don't know what was got into me. I don't know why I bought it. He chose to do it. It had absolutely nothing to do with us. He did it because of something that originates with him. There was nothing attractive about him. There was nothing he looked down. Well, he's got that little bit of a redeeming quality there. I'll just, I'll, I'll take him and, and, and nothing, nothing in me attractive. It was all about him. It was all about his love. Completely undeserved. It's all grace. So he says, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more? This is we're going to see this again and again. How much more? How much more? If we've been justified by his blood, by his death, right? So his death justified us. How more? Much more should we be saved from God's wrath through him? And he's going to keep on saying, if, if Christ's death accomplished that and got us justified and access with God, how much more will his life? What? Because Jesus didn't just die for us, he rose for us as well. So he not only was the sacrifice for our sins, but he now lives forever in his resurrection. So therefore, if we are connected through faith to the resurrected Christ, Paul says, that was only the beginning. How much more Will he now? Will we be saved? In other words, if while we were sinners, he died for us, he's not going to change his mind now that he's alive. He's not going to change his mind. So if he saved us when we were at the worst, now that he has saved us, he's certainly not going to abandon us. He's not going to do that. We are his. And, and, and he is going to continue to love us. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life, through his eternal life? Do you see what he's saying? Paul is just going, open our eyes, guys. This is really good stuff. If his death did that much for us, his life is like way, way more. Because he continues to live and make intercession for us. That's not going to change. Satan would love you not to believe this. He would love you not to get this. 
Because it'll keep you mired in condemnation, keep you pushed down. And he's saying, look, the death of Christ was only the beginning. He continues to live for you. You are united with him. How much more will you continue to be saved through his life? How much will you continue to enjoy peace with God, access to God, joy, hope? How much will you more will you continue to do that? Because that's connected to Jesus Christ who continues to live for you. Did so much more than just die for you. The resurrected, living, exalted Christ through his spirit carries to completion the work of salvation in our lives. Much more. If he reconciled his enemies, he's certainly going to save his friends. Not only this, verse 11, but we also boast or rejoice in God. What have we rejoiced in so far? We've rejoiced in the hope of glory. We've rejoiced in our sufferings. But you know, I think there's sometimes when we can't do even those things. Like, we can sometimes just not even think about the future. Just the present is just too heavy. And even our sufferings, and I, yeah, I know it's producing character, but God, do you know what? I think we can always rejoice in God himself. I think we can always rejoice in God. So, yeah, we rejoice in the future hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, but we rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He always says that. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. Done. Not only will we be saved, but we rejoice in God. We've already received. God is reconciling us. Rejoicing in God himself. And we're reconciled to him. To a person to relationship. Grace more than offsets sin. Salvation is certain. Okay, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And then actually Paul does what he often does. He interrupts his sentence. He does this quite often, actually. He'll be writing along, and then all of a sudden, he'll think, oh, that makes me think of something else. And then he goes off, and, and, and he does eventually come back to what he's going to, when he finishes his sentence, like in, in verse 18, okay? But, like, verse 12 is an incomplete sentence, all right? Just as sin entered the world through one man, who would that be? Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. You expect him to say, so... Righteousness entered the world through one man, Christ, and, and all that stuff. He doesn't say it here, okay? Because he's got some things that come to his mind and go, oh man, I gotta clear that one up before they think that. And so he kind of goes through this, this whole argument. So fasten your seatbelts as we go through this, okay? So he's gonna in, um, enlarge on the universality of sin here, okay? But so here he is. So Adam, which literally means man or mankind, that's what the name means, okay? From him we inherited our sin nature, as in Adam all die. Now, I will not lose any sleep um, figuring out how old the world is. I think it looks pretty old. I think it's probably a pretty old place. I just think it probably is, okay? If you think it's young, that's great. I, I'm good. I, it looks pretty old. Not really a big deal to me. I do believe in a young humanity, reasonably young. Uh, I believe in Adam and Eve as historical people and that we're all related to them, that they are our parents. So geneticists agree that we did come from some single source. And I would say that's Adam and why? Because Paul and Jesus take the historical Adam seriously. So to understand this theological concept, we're talking about this one dude, this guy, Adam. Now, whether there was Neanderthals around before that, could well be, no problem. But we're talking about Adam, the guy who God actually put his image into, and Adam and Eve actually then 
being our parents genetically, physically, and also in a sense spiritually. You need to understand that concept to get what Paul is talking about here, okay? He's saying sin came into the world through one man, the first person, the first man who sinned, actually. Eve did sin before that, but, but biblically speaking, from this perception, um, the idea that we inherited our sin nature from Adam. Now, you can say, well, that's not fair. I mean, so I'm born a sinner and I didn't even do anything yet. But actually, it ends up being kind of fair because we all confirm that with our own sin. So Paul's going to make that really clear. But through one person, sin came to the whole human race. Everybody sinned, and therefore everybody began the process of dying. Okay, we can thank him for that. Um, okay, similarly, in Christ... Everybody has the potential of, uh, of life. So it's sort of this communal concept, which to our Western individualistic way of life seems completely boring, but not to most of the world <laughs> who think of themselves in community much more than we do, okay? So the whole individual is just about me and stuff. That's very much a Western concept, very modern concept. It's uh, not held by most of the world or for most of history, okay? So just understand that. That um, for Paul, this is perfectly normal to understand, that we're communal, so things happen. Our representative, Adam, sinned, and from him, our, our sin nature has been inherited, and we confirm that by our own choices every day. And so, in the same way, as Adam could be our representative in that way, Christ could be a representative. So, through faith in Christ, we can all receive righteousness. This makes perfect sense. Two solidarities. A little bit overlapping in the sense that we're still in Adam in the sense that we're still mortal. But if we're in Christ, we will all be made alive future. So we've all confirmed this by our own individual sins. Okay? To be sure, as Paul says, sin was in the world before the law was given. What? So what he's doing, of course, here is, is he's raising this objection that somebody might make. Well, yeah, some are in Adam and some are in Christ, but surely there's yet another group that are in Moses. In other words, they follow the law and they sort of get to heaven that way. And, you know, is there such a group that's sort of in Moses? And Paul's going, uh, no, no. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, before Sinai. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Sin predated Sinai. In other words, before there was the law, there was sin. Nothing, nothing new there. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. In other words, sin was around before the law was around. So don't think there's this third group that's in Moses. Even those who didn't sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, um, who is the pattern of the one to come. Don't miss this. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. In other words, people like Adam had a command, right? What was the command? Well, he only had one. Don't eat from the tree. Fairly simple. Okay, one command. One. Okay? okay? One. But he broke the command. But lots and lots and lots of people didn't have any law, didn't have any rules, but they managed to find a way to sin anyway. Okay? So that's what Paul is, is arguing here, that, that Adam broke a law, but lots of people didn't break a specific law that they had, but they still sinned in lots of ways, and chapter 1 is a great uh, example of that. Okay? But it says that um, uh, he broke, uh, that Adam broke a command, who is the pattern of the one to come. Who is the one to come being referred to there? Jesus. Now, isn't it rather odd to say that Adam is a type of Christ? It's rather odd, isn't it? In what sense is Adam a type of Christ? Only one. In what sense? First of his kind. It's, it's what Paul is arguing that that through that one person, all this stuff happened. That's how he's like, through Adam's sin, as in Adam all die, he says in Corinthians, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. So that's how he's like, and that he has that effect, that he's passing on who he is to his descendants, if you like. So that's how he's like Christ, only in that way. Now he's going to go on to give 15 ways he's not like Christ, but that's the, the one way that he is. Verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. Now, here again, he's, he's opening our eyes to how much 
better Christ thing is than just making it better. It's not like, you know, sin put us sort of 30 bucks in the hole, and then Christ came along and gave us 30 bucks, and we're sort of where we started again. Okay? It's like sin put us in the hole, but Christ, you know, 30, whatever the debt was, it put us in the hole. But Christ made us like Warren Buffett. I don't know, like the richest guy in the world. Like, like, in other words, he gave us this huge, like it's way, way more than what we lost. The gift of Christ is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, right? Because like through one guy's sin, many died. So we all became mortal. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So one man did one sin and everybody died how many sins were put on Jesus Christ how many people are in the world as of yesterday 7 billion as of yesterday okay 7 billion persons before yesterday okay um, plus I mean the billions that were alive before now but uh, so I don't know well, let's say 10 billion people have existed 12 billion whatever you got a number um, 5% Five. I would have thought it was way more than that. But you... Okay. This will make. If that's true, which I sure won't quibble over, it makes it even even better for my illustration. So I'll, I'll go with it. So let's let's just let's just meet it halfway. Say there's been fifty billion people. I don't know. How many times do you sin in your life? Oh, that's scary. Multiply all that together and just think of the amount of sin that was put onto Jesus Christ. Just think of the huge, like, just think about, so one sin and then all of this was put on Jesus Christ. Can you see that, that there's just no balance here to what Adam did and to what Christ did? Like what Christ did was so much bigger. That's what he's saying. For if the many died by the trespass of the one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? In other words, Christ's influence for good far outweighs Adam's influence for evil. Does that make sense? Christ's influence for good is just way bigger than sin. So is sin a problem? Yes, it is. But is Christ's influence so much bigger than sin. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's way, way bigger. He keeps on with the contrast. 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many, many trespasses and brought justification. However many people you think lived on the planet, that's a lot of trespasses. More than just canceled it out, death becomes gain. Not just innocence, where we were before, but now righteousness, eternal life. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive Christ's or God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, if you look at verse 17 carefully, you'll see that he's saying some pretty powerful stuff. Okay, trespass of one man, death reigns. So what's reigning? Death. What would you expect the opposite of that to be? Life reigning, right? Death reigns, and now at the end, life reigns. That's sort of even Stephen, okay? That's pretty good. That's not what he's saying. Death reigns. Who's reigning at the end of verse 17? Look at it carefully. Who is doing the reigning? And don't say it's Jesus, because that's not the right answer. Who is doing the reigning? Not Satan. How much more will who? Those who receive. Who's that? Who is that? That is us. How much more will you, who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? What's he saying? Death reigned because of what Adam did. Jesus made you kings and queens. You are now reigning 
with Christ. That is your status. I mean, that is just absolutely huge if you understand that. Paul is just saying, wow, God, you are amazing because Adam did some bad stuff and it had a big effect. And we can look at the effects of, of like, you look around and, and this world is not a nice place. Anyway, man, that was a bad thing that happened in Adam. But you know what? What happened in Jesus Christ is not just sort of the equal to that. It's not sort of the yin and the yang or something like that. Okay? This thing is just totally in another universe. So not that, okay, death reigns, now life reigns. No, death reigns, and now we reign. We reign through one man, Jesus Christ. That is incredible. Consequently, just one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. So also, one righteous act resulted in justification. That would seem to be the other half of condemnation, but more life for all. So now Paul can complete his sentence that he started. Verse 12. One trespass resulted, one trespass, that's Adam, as in Adam all die, resulted in condemnation for all people. One righteous act. What's that? What is the one righteous act? It's the obedience of Jesus Christ, his obedient life, his being obedient to his father, even unto death. That is the one righteous act, and it results in potential justification and life for all. Jesus became obedient unto death. He had a perfect life of obedience that he offered up. Verse 19. Just as through disobedience of the one man, here we are, Adam again, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Not just pardoned, but made righteous. Again, you don't just walk out of the courtroom with your, your a big pardon slammed over all your crimes. You're made righteous. It's more than a fresh start, a clean slate. You're declared righteous. The law was brought in, like we saw, so that trespass might increase. In other words, that it might be magnified, that through the law people would see how serious sin was. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So it didn't just match it. God doesn't say, well, okay, I'll see your sin and I'll match it. He raises it. He, he puts grace higher so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, do you see how incredible God is? How much he loved you? How much that he cared for you? That he provided this antidote to what Adam did, to our sin. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's our status before God. We are sinners before God, desperately hopeless. And we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. And we can have eternal life with him through faith. That is the best news there is. He doesn't just kind of match us and sort of pull us out of this world but sort of like a drowned rat by the tail. He brings us out as kings, as queens, to the glory of God. He is building something. We're going to see in a couple chapters later just that he is taking us from glory to glory, that he is conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ making us more and more like him. That he might through all ages be able to point to us and say, there is an exhibit of my glory. Do you want to get in on that? Do you want to be part of that? Do you want to make the glory of God shine in your life more? Then you work with the Holy Spirit. Cooperate with him through sanctification. Cooperate with him that he can make you more easily into the image of his son so that you will look more and more like Jesus Christ. And that will bring glory to God. That is our purpose. That is our purpose. It always comes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of God, his gift of love, his smile, his rest, guarding our hearts, past, present, and future, the guilt and regret of the past, the anxiety and stress of the present, the worry and fear of the future, it's all under 
the peace of God guarding our hearts. This dark, dark picture that we've seen now shines all the brighter because God's grace is far more wonderful. That's why Paul is so optimistic. That's why he's so filled with hope. Why? Because life is really easy for him, sort of one toe in the Mediterranean while he sipped his pina colada. Uh, No, here's what he wrote like two months before he wrote these words, okay? Two months before he wrote what we just read. Five times I've received 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked three times, spent a night and day in the open sea, constantly on the move, danger in rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I see a pattern here forming. I have labored and toiled, gone without sleep, known hunger and thirst, gone without food, been cold and naked beside everything else. I face the daily concern and pressure for all the churches. Who is weak that I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin that I do not inwardly burn? This guy is experiencing a lot of suffering here and now. And he says in the midst of that, he has hope. He has the peace of God. He looks forward with hope. He rejoices in his suffering. I tell you, his optimism comes not from what he looks around at. We don't look to the world for optimism. We have, well, I think maybe things are getting a little better. I think this program over here is working a little. And, and by all means, try to do it. Do whatever you can for justice. Do whatever you can to improve this world. But, but don't try to get your hope from this world. Don't look and say, well, I think it's getting a little better. We can't, we can't have hope in this world. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in God and his eternal plans, is in his plans in our lives. That's what made Paul so optimistic. That's what made him so joyfully anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even this present suffering cannot dim it. It's just a chain of blessings back to hope. We're not just pardoned, we're turned into friends. This is God's crazy accounting where his blessings far outweigh just getting right with God. The peace, the joy, the hope that is ours. God and sinners reconciled. It's already happened. Just receive it. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in God. Your past is canceled. Your future is assured. Your present is lived out in the presence of the Holy Spirit, whose love is shed abroad in your hearts through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.